Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faiz Al-Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today I'm joined by Peter Pomeranza, a journalist, author of the books Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, Adventures in Modern Russia, and his latest book This is Not Propaganda. He's also a director at the ARENA program at John Hopkins University. I'm also joined by Idris Ahmed, a senior editor here at New Lines, as well as a contributing editor at the LA Review of Books, who has written and spoken widely about propaganda and the war against reality. Peter, Idris, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Hello. Uh, Peter, I want to start with an article you wrote recently for the Atlantic Council called Ending Ukraine's Memory Wars. This is a project that you are you are now part of exploring the feelings of Ukrainians towards their past through a series of films. And in the article you write, I'll, I'll quote, Kremlin propaganda tries to split Ukrainian society by fueling memory wars while piling on nostalgia for the USSR. The aim is to divide the country based on the cliche of a pro-Russian or pro-Soviet East versus a pro-Ukrainian or pro-European West. Let's start there with what you consider these memory wars to be and why you think they are such a powerful political tool. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, sort of the article is is sort of co-authored with my fellow researchers. It's not a sort of authored piece. It's a very, it's just it's just to get media attention to the report, which we've done. Mm. Uh, so just, I mean, it's very important to mention the others. We've It's a very big research team. We've been doing this project several years and wow. it includes polling, focus groups, um, sort of digital analysis, um, and it combined what we often do at Arena, which is the research initiative that I lead. We combine sort of journalists with sociologists, with historians, with creative people, with computer scientists, and 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 see what kind of crumbles through. Mm. Um, so the Kremlin openly talks about using history as a weapon, and we're really talking about you know the instrumentalization of historical narratives. This is not about you know, you know, justice for the past or something. So like, how can we find the sort of the underbelly of the countries around us, basically, and mess with them? I mean, they do the same thing in America. You know, Russia doesn't care about, um, you know, racial issues or racial rights in America, but it knows that's an issue it can manipulate. So same with with these historical issues in and around its periphery. Um, and, and they talk about this openly. They talk about this openly as part of their statecraft. They talk about they use the Second World War a lot of the time as a way to, you know, destabilize the Baltics, for example, which has a very, very complex, to put it gently, a divisive history of the Second World War. Now, they're not doing that because they want a historical reckoning. They're doing it because they, you know, it's 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 a foreign policy tool and a nasty one at that. Mm. So that's very important to point out that they're not really interested in history. This is about choosing a narrative, any narrative that will serve their aims to weaken countries. So um, in Ukraine, uh, yeah, a lot of it, you know, Ukraine, Ukrainians fought on different sides of the Second World War, for example, mm. um, and and something that the Russia used a lot, really in its actual invasion of Ukraine in 2014, not just in its kind of, you know, in its in its um, you know in its information policy, but it's in in its sort of like, you know, in its its hard tools was, you know, whip up these memories of the fascists are coming, the fascists are coming, and really sort of really push really hard this sense that um, um, the Kiev uh, post the Maidan revolution is being governed by people who are the inheritors of the fascists who collaborated with the Nazis in World War II and who are also kind of boogeymen of Soviet propaganda. And, and these guys were coming to the east of Ukraine, these ferocious fascists, and they were going to literally crucify your children. Actually, there were even stories about how they, fake stories of how they crucify children. Um, so, so, you know, it's whipped up like that. Then in a more lingering way, there's the sense, you know, we, we were great during the Soviet Union. It was this great power. And independent Ukraine is just this small nationalist hellhole, um, you know, nonstop nostalgia for the achievements of the Soviet Union. Um, and and a lot of it is around statues, you know, should be very familiar from anybody from knows the American context, you know, part of the, um, you know, part of Ukraine's independence um, has been around pulling down Soviet era statues of, you know, of Lenin, perhaps most famously, but also of people like Dzerzhinsky, the first head of the secret police. 
Um, and that is then used to kind of go, oh, look, these people are out to get your identity. They're out to, you know, take away who you are, your memory, your culture, your pride by pulling down these statues. So mm. those are the sort of things that are used. Um, they're used very aggressively. And I suppose what's important about Ukraine is that they're also part of a hard, real war, not just a kind of, you know, propaganda war. Yeah, I mean, that's the bit I want to come to that. And we'll come to statues and in the American context. But I want to think about this wedge issue, because as you say, they're not using these historical examples just for the sake of rewriting a historical narrative. They're actually very interested in the present political moment. They're seeking to try to define the political future of the country in the present moment. Exactly, exactly. No, none of this has anything to do with, with you know, raising, you know, these very, very complex, sensitive and, and you know, often very unpleasant historical truths, which, of course, have to be raised. It's got nothing to do with that. Um, um, and, and so what we were interested in is, OK, you know, we were, we were interested in the world of sort of in the question of what does public service media or public service spirited media do in this context? Um, because it's a hard one. I mean, you shouldn't you know, it's, it is our job to dredge up difficult history. You shouldn't avoid it. Um, but how can you do that in a way that doesn't play into these propaganda games? Um, and then I suppose the other one was like, are we letting the Kremlin set the agenda and the framing? You know, they're constantly hammering these themes. Yeah. Are there other things that people care about? Do we only have to be debunking Kremlin disinformation, which is largely what Ukrainian media spends its time doing? Um, but so, that, that piece, yeah. just to, yeah, so that one is so interesting because you're right. Sometimes when you're trying to react to the media narrative set by, I mean, by a political um, group, sometimes you find yourself very much on the back foot because they are setting the framing. So I wondered, I wondered first of all, how you think um, democratic media can can fight that but then also what you think about raising these issues through this project i mean actually bringing up some of this trauma i mean let's talk about the the democratic media first in what way can the democratic media stop trying to be so reactive well it is about um uh it is about first sort of taking a breath and not being reactive i mean look another research that we've done i'll just give you a little example um how bad this gets so in Italy, we did a big project in Italy with Corriere della Sera looking at migration. And between 2017 and 2019, the numbers of migrants were falling rapidly because as we know, what you guys know, probably your listeners know, you know, there was a deal, a very unpleasant deal, but a deal done, you know, with Turkey and other countries to stop the huge influx of refugees across the Mediterranean. So numbers in Italy were going down by 80%, 200%. And yet the amount of stories were going up. The amount of stories were going up was because Matteo Salvini, the far-right um, provocative um, politician who was Minister of Home Affairs, was constantly raising this issue and constantly creating scandalous stories around it. So, look, we see it. I think, you know, I, I, I think media, if they really care, would start with doing a little bit of, you know, measuring how many stories they're doing. Is this actually equal to what people care about this issue? Is this actually equal to, you know, how salient this issue is at the present moment? Or are they in a bubble? Are they in a kind of agenda setting bubble that's being set by the other side? So you, you'd start, you know, a little bit of a little bit of sort of self-reflection, I think. Um, but but it's not just um, um, it's not just about finding another agenda. I do think it's goes deeper than that. You know, we can't just say, ah, oh, let's just talk about the price of fish. You know, it's often the reaction to populists is, let's not get distracted by their culture war. Let's go and invest, you know, let's just talk about, you know, bread and butter issues. Because right. it's not that easy. The, the, the populists are tapping into identity. They are then exploiting it. I think it's very important to understand what vulnerabilities they're exploiting. We've just done some work in, um, in Hungary as well, where it's very interesting because Orban in Hungary is the master of culture war. Turns out that most people in Hungary don't give a, a monkeys about Orban's talk about the Islamification of Europe and religious values. They don't care about that. But Hungarians are, in our polling, in our focus groups, deeply concerned about security. They're deeply, they have this very deep insecurity that I think comes from, you know, Hungarian sort of history and modern history and also 2008 where they suffered very badly. And so that's what Orban is actually capitalizing on. He's giving a sense of safety and security, the tough guy who will look out after you in this unstable world. So those are the things you have to look at. And the cultural thing is actually just like, 
you know that's the wrapper and a bit like the russian stuff as well yeah, sorry, sorry. just before you just before you explain the Russian stuff, I mean, there's a sort of genius to it, though, isn't there? I mean, when you, even though it is just a rapper, it's the rapper that people can sort of get their, I mean, it's a mixed metaphor, but get their teeth into. I mean, if they're really concerned about security, then you don't, the, the, the genius of the populists like Orban is they don't meet people where they are. They don't talk to them about security. They talk to them about the rapper, the rapper of Islamification. And I imagine you would say in Russia, for example, in the Ukrainian context, the Russians don't talk about what Ukraine is worried about. They talk about these historical wars, which is the sort of rapper. Yeah, we'd have to go deeper. It's, it, it gets, I mean, you do have to sort of like burrow into this stuff. It's all very mixed. Um, so there are some rappers which do speak to that, you know. So, for example, the sense that you're a second-class citizen in the EU for Hungary, yeah? Mm, or just the yeah, sense yeah. that you're not listened to in Ukraine. So a lot of people in the East, for whatever reasons, and whether justifiably or unjustifiably, they genuinely feel unlistened to. They feel unstable. So any kind of thing going, I'll shore up your identity when you feel very unstable, that seems to resonate. In Hungary, the stuff about Islamification doesn't do that well. That's almost like a distraction. That's always like, here's a boat, go and run with it. Most mm. people, you know, many Hungarians are probably against the Islamification of Europe, but, you know, they wouldn't have even thought of that topic. Right. So it's almost like, yes. you know, here's a boat, go and grab yeah, yeah. the boat. And, yeah. and, but what I'm saying is, it's, I don't think you can counter this by just talking about, you know, um, bread and butter issues. They are, they are digging into the identity stuff. Mm. Um, and I do think we have to be very careful in understanding what it is they're tapping into, what matters and what isn't, what is wrapping, what is the deeper stuff. Yeah. So, so it's it's not, you know, it's it's what we advocate for basically is starting to sort of combine social research with journalism, um, not in the way PR people do, do it in ways which are very open. In all our research, we kind of say, look, we're doing this research. Even the films sort of say this is the result of various research. So you can do it in a way that's perfectly open, but we just can't be a little bit more self-conscious that we're being played um, by political actors, that, you know, often when we react, we're actually just helping them or we risk helping them. And, that you know, we do have to engage with audiences more, whether we do it like we do through boring old polling and focus groups or whether you do engagement journalism. But, you know, we, we, I do think we have to be start becoming much better at listening to people. Mm. Idris, let me bring you in because you have a, a particularly unique perspective on this because you're you're in the UK, of course, which went through the Brexit issue. And the Brexit issue in some ways is very similar to what Peter is talking about with regards to identity and this metaphor that we are now all using about rappers. But then equally, because you're in Scotland, you have this other secondary issue, which is sort of similar as well about uh, independence of Scotland. Do you see that there are parallels about identity and the the sort of memory wars of what came before in those two issues? Um, I'm, I'm not sure over here that has been such a, such a at least in Scotland, it hasn't been such a major factor, but obviously it was in the um, Brexit campaign because that was a lot of it was just about nostalgia. And um, um, even the responses to that, the PR responses, have been a lot about nostalgia that, uh, you know, once you discover that, okay, this isn't as great an idea as it was sold to you. So then you look for metaphors like um, Dunkirk or something like that and uh, try to, um, you know, use those kinds of, uh, um, to try to find some um, current resonance for that. But um, I think in Scotland, this has been um, partly driven by, um, I would say that, um, well, there's certainly nationalist mythology, but uh, a lot of it has to do with more um, current and practical concerns. It's about marginalization. It's about um, the um, sense of powerlessness. And, um, and also it's about um, just perceiving that, well, your, your best interest may not lie in this union, but in a larger union. Um, like the European Union, so I think that that's that has been a larger concern. But you know, in immediate terms, um, um, I speak to students a lot, and um, some of them were telling me that they had voted against independence back in 2014, mm. but they would think differently now. They would say that they would vote differently now, and um, and part of it was just because they perceive that um, Scotland has. Um, um, that nationally it is not it doesn't have a voice and secondly it's also um treated in a manner which is um um 
it is not seen as a um, an equal. Uh, it's not a kind of equal union of nations, and Scotland yeah. is seen as marginal and treated as marginal. So, so and that kind of helps people then obviously revert to history, and um, you know they they start looking for. Um, um, kind of a older older pre precedence and um, part of it is here but I think that the Scottish nationalism has been to a large extent very much free from um, that kind of mythologizing at least in its mainstream form um, so I don't think that the, uh, the nationalism here is very similar to in um, the nationalisms in the rest of uh, Europe. But in Brexit, I mean, we can leave the Scottish example to one side, but the, oh. the Brexit situation was very similar. I mean, some parallels there definitely about identity. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And also, even in Scottish context, I have a context, you know, when uh, Peter was talking about the wedge issues. So that was a major target of Russian propaganda at the time. And um, there was a big attempt at the time to try to um, exploit that because there was certainly a sense that BBC wasn't uh, giving a fair hearing to the um, to the independence argument. And yeah. um, that's when Russia today made big inroads here. And that's where afterwards then even Sputnik, um, um, they set up uh, their headquarters in Edinburgh. And uh, they really exploited the um, the nationalist uh, cause. And in fact, right now, even the splits within the SNP, um, or at least the attempted split within the SNP, was very much driven by um, this type of propaganda. And um, um, you had, in fact, even people from formerly um, producers and editors at uh, Sputnik who were very active in the um, even in the uh, Salmon campaign. And even this, there's a kind of a more radical splinter group, which is pressuring, um, um, what's her name, to uh, Nicholas Sturgeon to take more immediate action and presenting her as a compromised figure because she's not uh, immediately calling for independence. And uh, those figures were very much being um, amplified and manipulated from, from outside. And, and, and Russia today was quite successful in that, that uh, mm. they saw this wedge issue here. And uh, they they kind of um, um, and a lot of the time they didn't even have to do too much work. They could find examples of um, um, you know BBC kind of uh, giving an unfavorable or unsympathetic coverage, or or very often um, giving coverage which was uh, very noticeably bent or noticeably um, skewed. So that way they were able to. Um, they were able to influence or they were at least able to gain a lot of uh, audience over here. Mm. Uh, Peter, you know Russia very well. I mean, these vulnerabilities that exist in societies, the, the three examples we've talked about, four really, Ukraine, Hungary, Italy, five, um, Brexit and Scotland, those vulnerabilities, they exist within those societies. But Russia seems to be particularly good at, at playing them off at finding these issues and then using its its propaganda arms through these media companies. Why, in your experience of Russia, why is it that the country is so good at this? <laughs> well, look, it's an old tradition. They've been doing it for a long time. No one got, you know, it was a wonderful book by Thomas Ridd called Active Measures about the Soviet um, disinformation um, complex, really. Um, you had people who created that kind of like that whole infrastructure in the 50s and 60s and 70s go on in the face of Andropov to run the country, to run the Soviet Union. No one ever got rid of, you know, they have a whole school, you know, and schools of this. And no one, even in the crazy 90s when Russia was a bit, of, you know, wasn't up to, was up to less in terms of its kind of foreign policy. Mm. Um, no one ever got rid of those, those you know, mythodichki as they're known in Russian, those kind of guidebooks. So there's a rich tradition. There's a school. There's educators. You get taught it, and 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 so 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 it's there. The other thing is that they spend a lot of time in countries. I mean, the tradition is, unlike the British or American ones, keep your ambassador in a country for a long time, keep specialists on the countries who are there for a long time, who really know it, who um, speak the language. Um, they have excellent. They still have, even even though the universities went through a tough time. There, you know, the MGU China department was always considered one of the best in the world. The MGU and um, um, Middle East department always had incredible specialists 
I remember some people from Princeton coming over to do a debate with them and just understanding that the guys at MGU, they'd only been doing Middle East stuff since the age of 17. And they will mm. only continue doing that for the rest of their career. Um, yeah. And they were just on a different plane to the Americans. They have proper specialists, proper understanding, proper language knowledge. And, and they see it as part of their foreign policy toolkit. Um, it's just, you know, what they do. Um, I mean, this, yeah. is, uh, this is something actually that I, I quite like about the way that you talk about Russia. I mean, you seem to talk about it with, I wouldn't say affection, but with a certain amount of admiration for the things that are good in Russian society. And I think that sometimes is, have I misinterpreted that? Well, the KGB is good, but they do, um, I don't know. Look, I mean, no, I mean, I no, I'm not a huge fan of the uh, Russian Secret Service tradition. Um, I do, you do hear Americans going, oh, well, you know. No, but in terms of the the education that exists in Russia, um, this sort of culture of taking the foreign world seriously, which some countries don't do as much. Look, they they even in the 1990s, when Russia was in, in obviously in a very, very weak state, they never stopped thinking of themselves as an empire. They never stopped. They were maybe distracted, but they never stopped. And as an empire, as and as an empire which can only make sense of itself in a global context, having global meaning, they take that stuff seriously. It's corrupt. It's inefficient. A lot of it is bullshit. But in terms of how they conceptualize themselves, that's never changed. Right. Let's go back a little bit to the Ukraine example and then sort of broaden it out, because I, I wanted Idris to come in about memory wars. Um, when specifically talking about what was happening in the Syrian civil war. Because, Idris, obviously you've written a lot about what happened with Ruta and how there, in the same way as with the Ukrainian example, there's a sort of battle for reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a... Um, it, there's something quite interesting about if you look at uh, um, a lot of the debate that happened over, over Syria, that um, you have on one hand this daily atrocities that were occurring and which are very hard to deny because uh, they are of a kind which are very easy to pin that, you know, if it's aerial bombing that is happening, there's only one party with the air, with the air force. So it's very easy to pin. But all the debates what were elevated were over the chemical attacks, which were minor incidents in the larger scheme of things in Syria. Mm -hmm. They were extraordinary in terms of their, um, you know, just the nature. But uh, the thing was that in terms of their actual impact, they were quite minor. But what happened is that all the debates happened around whether this chemical attack happened or not. And the, the manufacturing of doubt happened around these incidents. And because these noticeable incidents, there was so much doubt that was... Um, you know, there was, it was almost like a manufacturing this fog of war. And that fog led people to assume that they just can't make judgment about Syria, that any yeah. judgment is in, everything is in dispute. If the most noticeable thing that is happening in Syria is in dispute, so maybe withhold judgment. judgment. And I think that that has been very critical to how perceptions were shaped. Um, and in one of the other things, ironic things is that... Um, um, Whenever you have, if you remember, you, you'll you probably, you know, remember the first major atrocity, the first major kind of a killing of a journalist. Everybody remembers Marie Colvin being killed. Okay. Everybody remembers the Hula massacre and all. But I think that one of the way ugly lessons that probably everybody else would have learned from this is that, well, if you have committed one major massacre, well, don't confine yourself to one. Mm -hmm. Commit so many that yeah. it just becomes like part of a, um, that every new one erases the previous one and um, with every new one there's also a kind of progressive uh, decline in the level of outrage and you know because I, I, something quite interesting to me was that um, everybody was speaking about the refugee crisis in 2015 you know it was all over the news yeah. but in 2019 nobody was speaking about it even though in 2019 you had the largest displacement of the Syrian civil war. I mean, I shouldn't call it civil war. That's another kind of a misnomer there. And uh, of the this Syrian conflict, you had the largest displacement that happened, nearly a million people, that just one year, 2019. Yeah. And yet nobody was speaking about a refugee crisis. There's an attention fatigue to it. There's that. and But yeah, obviously, I mean, the, the um, that is part of it. And um, I think that that also happens when, in some ways, um, 
there's a kind of a audiences feel disempowered. You know, if some action has some kind of a reaction and, uh, you know, some policy changes because of that, people to some extent remain connected to it, you know, whether it's yeah. in, in kind of a positive terms or negative terms, but they remain connected to it. But what happens is if they see atrocities happening and all that is expected of them is either outrage or sympathy, that fades over time. And I think that once, you know, um, these type of uh, atrocities or or any kind of uh, mass criminality, it gets detached from any kind of accountability. So then people naturally, they tune out mm. over time. Peter, you'll be very familiar um, with this idea of manufacturing doubt. This is actually one of the, the sort of the principal uh, ideas that the, the the Russian propaganda machine seems to work on. I think you alluded to it in the title of your book, Nothing is True. The idea that you, and everything is possible, that you you try to create this sort of fog of facts and it's not clear, it's not obvious how you weave through it and you, you end up by saying, well, look, it's just, it's impossible to know the truth. Is that something that that's really at the core of of the way the Russian propaganda machine interacts with the rest of the world? So, on the one hand, manufacturing doubt is an, is a, is is a time honored tradition in propaganda. Um, I recently did a series for the BBC about how you know it developed um, in corporate disinformation around um, to dispel kind of to undermine the connection between first tobacco and smoking and then climate change and fossil fuels. Mm. And very openly, their aim was to, you know, spread doubt. And, you know, it's very corrosive because the arguments that are used are kind of, you know, it's giving people more evidence. And here's another piece of evidence. And here's right. another piece of evidence. Yes. What's more wrong with more evidence? Yeah. And here's kind of weird experts who are kind of weird, but they are, you know, they are professors at MIT. So maybe- right. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, I think in both yeah. cases, by the way, both for climate change and, and Syria, we had professors at MIT. So, so, so it's a time on a mission. I'll let anyone in these days. Yeah. Well, what, what's interesting is, um, is, is how it's been mainstreamed by political ideology, which is interesting because political ideology has always been about persuasion. It's about getting people to believe and, and usually to get them to go and fight for you, you know? So, so it's been about motivation and persuasion. What the Kremlin realizes, and here I think it's a big cultural moment in the 1990s, all the old ideologies are dead, um, especially in the Russia of the 1990s, communism, people didn't believe in, democratic capitalism, which people were, I think, euphoric about at the start of the 90s. By 93, economic collapse, Yeltsin is shelling the, the parliament. And in this new world, there are kind of no ideologies left to kind of motivate people around. So all that's left is sowing doubt, you know, to really create a passive public, but that works with people's sense about where the world is. Propaganda only works when it echoes people's, you know, people's, you know, anxieties and feelings. Yeah. And 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 when because the, there's no ideologies and sense of ideas, all that's left is identity and nostalgia. So in the 1990s, you find, you know, just this idea of the creation of the Putin majority, you know, as a sort of thing unto itself. We will create a majority. And what do we believe in? Putin. And what, is, what does Putin stand for? The majority. Um, and, and just based on this idea of bringing Russia off its knees, this hazy nostalgia for nothing specific, um, a kind of collage of Solzhenitsyn and Stalin, at, literally at the same time. Um, so you, you, there's no ideas left, no rational arguments left, because there's no kind of points you're trying to win anymore. Um, and it's a very interesting thing. Um, so it's 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 seeding doubt, and then once there's nothing to believe in that's rational, you just you know you just play identity games, um, which do are very fluid. Do you see any parallels then with perhaps other political slogans around the world? So, for example, um, when you were talking about the Putin majority, I was thinking about making America great again, yeah. which sort of has a similar circularity to it that you can just maybe even building the wall. I mean, you can yeah. build the wall forever and make America great forever. Yeah, and the people I talked to in my last book, the sort of Russian spin doctors from the 90s basically said, look, you in the West are going through the crisis we went through in Russia in the 90s. Um, not just the West, by the way. I think, I think it's everyone who went through a spurt of kind of hope at the end of the Cold War and thought a certain model had won. But then that model which won the Cold War you know, became hollowed out, hollowed out yeah. in 2008 for a lot of people. But it's very interesting going to Southeast Asia, which went through its own process of 
you know, democratization or South Africa or Latin America, who all went through their kind of own 1989s at the end of the 20th century and where it's run into corruption, where it's run into a sense of no future. India, another great example. And, and, um, and, and, and so it's happening globally, really. Um, and these spin doctors were like, yeah, I mean, we got there first in Russia because we had our big kind of disillusionment with, with, with 20th century ideas in the 1990s. And we started to negotiate that um, in terms of our propaganda. And we're kind of arriving there. <laughs> we're all we're all we're all repeating Russia's um very sad journey, which won't mean that we end up like Russia or anything like that. It's just well, that was something what I, yeah, repeating. that's what I was gonna ask you. Yeah. does it mean that? Well, the lesson is it's not like because they're different systems and all these, you know, everybody will have this thing manifest itself in 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 ways that that you know are connected with their own traditions and their own institutions. But what is similar is that when ideas disappear. All that's left is a politics of identity. And the danger of the politics of identity is that it becomes just around a very primitive. Um, I use the word polarization very carefully. There's a, you know, polarization that denies any kind of dialogue with the other. So Rush, Putin did that in the 1990s, well, late 1990s and then 2000. So it was, you know, it's the same spin doctors doing late Yeltsin and early Putin, basically. Um, and and um, he did that. And at the end of the day, opposing the liberals against the rest of the country, yeah? yeah. And the stake the liberals made was not was was allowing themselves to play into it. Coming back to our first topic, yeah. So they allowed themselves to play into that. They allowed themselves to be cast as these, you know, liberal cosmopolitans in Moscow who don't care about the country. Now, I see that. Now I see that repeating. You know, I see in America. I don't know, I don't want to sort of like point fingers, but the New York Times um, just deciding to play for one audience and deciding for some reason, which I think is very damaging not to reach out to the rest of the country or CNN deciding, okay, you want to play that game, Fox? Let's play that game. And deciding to be the media for one part of the country and not even trying to reach out. And, and that is a pattern. That is a pattern. In Russia, that pattern has is associated then with, with totalitarian or dictatorial tendencies and putting people in jail. Um, so we have less of an excuse. We're doing it for market reasons a lot of the time, basically. Yes, that's the difference. Um, I know, and that's less of an excuse. That's less of an excuse. Um, people often ask me, why was Navalny poisoned? We don't know why. But what he started doing at the end was going out to the regions. That was the red line he crossed. As long as he sat in Moscow doing protests in Moscow, okay. He started going to the regions. We had these huge protests in the east, Suddenly, the Kremlin was like, "Okay, we're letting, we're losing the polarization game." You know, we had liberals in Moscow; let them do what they want. We have the rest of the country who hate them. Suddenly, Navalny was organizing across the country. That was the red line. So that's very, very telling. You know, that's the thing that they're scared of, rather than just liberals talking to themselves. And I suppose that would also explain why Navalny was so keen to go back to Russia, because he didn't want to be painted as this person outside, living in Germany and uh, agitating for change. That's the strategic bit that we can understand as normal human beings. But I do think you have to understand that when we start talking about Russian and Russian politics, that is, there's that, and then there's a different count. And I don't think, I don't know what's inside Navalny's head, but I don't think you can do that without feeling that you're chosen in some way, that you have a mission. And that's that mission. Yeah. That mission, I'm sure Putin feels that, by the way. It's a very Russian thing <laughs> to feel these things. It's the Solzhenitsyn thing. You're not just doing this. You're on a, you, I don't want to use the word messianic, but that's kind of what it is. You have to, to walk into certain arrest and probable death. Yes. You must feel that you have meaning beyond. Yes, I, I had just, the same. Yes, I had the same thought about it. It must it's, be. A, it's bigger than just tactics. Mm, mm. Uh, Idris, you know, when Peter and I were just talking about uh, sort of memory wars, and we were talking, you mentioned India. And India is a good example. We've talked before about how the same process that happened, this whole polarization that happened in the, the US, also happened with um, India and Modi and the way the these sort of ideas of the past have been weaponized. Yeah, I think it's a, um, and also, uh, it's not just uh, picking up some parts of the past. A lot of the, the time, it's also about suppressing a certain um, history. Um, you know, so India's early history was way different than 
um, or even the conception of India at the time was very different than it is now. And uh, that has also meant erasing the legacy of, uh, well, Gandhi, Nehru, and uh, these type of, uh, uh, of leaders and um, costing it more in terms of, um, you know, basically um, costing your, um, your eye for the back in history and even erecting um, statues to figures who were not exactly the the most obvious ones from Indian history and who you commemorate that has also changed. And so I think that um, it's very much dictated by the present, what part of history, you know, you're going to um, spotlight and which parts you're going to erase. And um, I think that's happening very much in, in India and, um, you know, India and Pakistan used to have this kind of a parallel um, sort of, uh, you could say that uh, reciprocal um, rewritings of history. And um, to some extent um, in Pakistan, that that kind of a battle has been um, in some way been relegated because the military has emerged as the country's only sort of, uh, um, it, there's a very interesting irony here that the military kind of impoverishes all the country's rest of institutions, so yeah. they don't function well. And yet, at the end of the day, because the military seems appears to function better than everything else, so people always feel like, well, you know, the reason why maybe we are dominated by the military is because they look at them, they perform more reliably than everything else. Mm. So, um, in terms of, you know, when I was. Um, um, in school, so this is this is the interesting thing that from year to year we had one one particular um, um, this class which used to be called Pakistan Studies and which was basically a nation building exercise because Pakistan is a very diverse country and um, for a long time even there was a struggle over the common language and um, um, and funny thing is that uh, um, you know in Pakistan a lot of people watch Indian films. And because the culture feels very familiar and um, concerns feel, seem very familiar, aesthetics and everything. And the language is obviously totally familiar with mind of here words and words here and there, except we didn't know that while well, the language they are speaking is actually called Hindi. You know, we also saw that all well, these films are actually Urdu because it's the same language. So it's just that the script is different. So once the two nations were created, so then you had also this, um, need for creating separation. So which meant that you had to build the nation and uh, the nation building exercise included um, these classes like Pakistan studies, except that identity was never fixed from year to year, depending on which government would come to power, even Pakistan's own history would be re rewritten. You know, that um, if Benazir Bhutto would come to power, the history would be very, you'll be reading a very different history than when next year Nawaz Sharif comes to power. So I but it hasn't that, been uh, sorry, but it hasn't been weaponized in the same way as it has in India during the Modi years. Uh, no, not quite. I mean, in Pakistan, I mean, it, generally there used to be this thing about uh, Pakistan was supposed to be the um, country of conquerors and all. It was weaponized in a very ugly way during the um, the kind of uh, the civil war, nineteen seventies, there when. Bangladesh and Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh was being created or Bengal was in revolt. And uh, so the Western Pakistanis, the way they justified dispossessing the Bengalis, um, because the Bang Bangladeshi leader had won, he should have become legitimately the prime minister, but uh, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, Benazir's father, so he refused to concede. And uh, the view in the West was that, well, we are the um, sort of the, we are the children of the conquerors. And um, so that's why, you know, that, uh, that somehow the legitimately the rule of this country always belongs to to us. And actually and that, same sort of, that same sort of idea of of the the narrative of the past influencing what's currently happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, people draw then direct lineages to all the way to Muhammad bin Qasim, the first Arab conqueror of uh, um, of India. And then, you know, or to the northern conquerors, they to the Mughals or to the, um, you know, the Duranis and to the others who came from the north, from Afghanistan and Central Asia. So what would happen is that people um, use these kind of a, as a kind of a historical justification for why 
we have a right to deny the legitimate winner of a democratic election the power. You know, so it, that, that's what was happening in the 70s. But uh, regarding something that Peter was saying, I, I wanted to just uh, um, speak about the fact that, you know, one of the things that I'm doing in my my book that I'm writing is focusing on the demand side of pro propaganda. Because propaganda doesn't just succeed because you're manipulating people. There's also a certain will to be, not exactly to be manipulated, but for your worldview to be reinforced. So, you know, that's what happens in a lot of the um, societies which are targeted by propaganda, that you know that there's a certain predisposition. Maybe there's a predisposition because of the Iraq war in, uh, in Britain or in the United States not to get engaged in any new conflict or anything. So you already have a will to um, avoid action. So if you're, let's say, a propagandist reporting on, uh, reporting on Syria, all you have to do is, because of that, kind of feed their motivated reasoning give them things that they are already inclined to doubt so you just are kind of uh, giving them the stimulant for that doubt and that's very often what the propaganda does i mean you know something that uh, peter was mentioning that um, was that how one of the tactics now has been not so much the in fact certainly in syria one of the things that you will see is that it's not always persuasive counter narratives in fact they are very unpersuasive it's yeah. just a deluge of counter narratives so that when you're deluged with you know i think in the case of uh, the first guta chemical attack there were it was over 80 or so counter narratives that were produced by the russian government and so the thing was the point was not so much to persuade with persuade you with one or the other it was just to create so many counterclaims that truth becomes just one claim <coughs> among all these many. And right. so then what you have is just, uh, you know, anybody who's who's not sort of uh, immersed in the issues, doesn't understand, um, um, or even people like, you know, you mentioned MIT, you know, the, the MIT professor that they brought in again and again was this guy called Ted Postel. And, um, and the thing is that very often, it's it's a funny thing, but uh, the very people who should understand these are very inclined to tap into the same logical fallacies. Like uh, um, I had a exchange with Noam Chomsky because he was promoting Ted Postel's conspiracy theory, and I asked him like, "What did you find persuasive about his argument?" I mean, this was a literal question I asked him, and he said that I said nothing about uh, whether his argument was persuasive. This was literally Chomsky's response, and then he says that I am just saying that he's a very credible and well-respected authority. So if he is saying that there's a reason to doubt, I want to believe him. You know, so now that's you know the typical appeal to authority fallacy that you're not really saying that you find anything persuasive about it. You already have a disposition to doubt. You're finding somebody's authority that you can use as cover and refusing to pass judgment on what was probably one of the biggest uh, you know single day atrocity that we have witnessed since in i don't know a very long time have you peter have you linking that with what you were saying earlier peter have you found that that's the case in russia that there is sort of this will to believe in the putin story because the putin story seems to be a kind of stable bedrock with so much going wrong in the region around it, and actually, frankly, within Russia itself, it's sometimes easier to believe in the Putin idea because it seems like it's this bastion of stability. Um, so, so firstly, all propaganda is always around understanding your audiences and resonating with them. So we're, I don't know, I think I put it in that piece that you mentioned at the start quite pretentiously about it's the difference between a cult leader and a psychotherapist, you know, propaganda is like a cult leader working out a society's vulnerabilities and then manipulating them. Uh, while, uh, you know, good media is like a psychotherapist bringing out these traumas into speech. Look, people crave propaganda. I mean, Jacques Ellul is still probably my favorite writer on propaganda is grumpy French Marxist Catholic contradictory philosopher. And, and he was like, we, we beg for propaganda. We desire propaganda because it gives us a place in the world. It, it, it's something that allows us to sort of like know what know who we are in a chaotic world. And we live in a very chaotic world with a huge amount of instability and flux on every level, economic, social, even, even in terms of genders, you know, everything is in flux. And the, you know, the genius of a Putin or, or actually of a Trump is to simplify the world and to give you a place in it. And the model they, they use is essentially, 
conspiratorial. So the world is one great conspiracy. The conspiracy is always changing. It's always different conspiracies, but it's a conspiratorial world. Conspiracies kind of replaced ideology as a way to explain the world. And uh, you have that a place in it. And it's a very cunning ruse because on the one hand, it says you can't change anything. So all your efforts at democratic change are pointless because you don't understand what's going on in the world. It's a conspiracy. So how yeah. are you going to change anything? Right. On the other hand, it makes you feel good about yourself because, you know, you have special knowledge and, you know, all your failures aren't your failures um, because of the conspiracy. And so that's everything they do. Everything they do is to give people with a huge amount of anxiety, instability, that sense that they're a place in the world. And that's why it's very hard to defeat it with facts and things like that. You yes. know, it's, it's not about facts. It's about identity in the sense of, you know, having having a place in the world. And the genius of Russian propaganda and a fox, sadly, is that it does that. Um, and, and, and they're playing a different game. They're working with those things. And we try to go, but here are the facts. And look, we have decades and decades of social science research that shows that when facts collide with identity, identity wins, even among very educated people. So um, um, that's what they're doing. That's the game they're playing. And the question for me is, how do you work with that? Because I don't think facts in and of themselves, even though they're a sine qua non, um, will do it. I actually think the only thing that can compete is culture. Culture is the only thing that works with identity, but makes you question your identity or see the humanity of others. And I mean culture as in, you know, everything from TV shows through to books, through to art, all that stuff is where the real competition is. Um, um, and I guess I'm biased because I worked in entertainment TV, but I can't remember who said it. Like anyone who thinks that entertainment TV or entertainment uh, is not about politics and news doesn't understand the first thing about either. Um, so so I, I think that's what the big responsibility is. Um, I'm not saying facts don't matter, by the way. I'm saying facts are important. But to get people to that point where they can start even talking about the facts and discussing them or even agreeing on what evidence is, you have to do this huge amount of work to just get people to be open-minded enough to to not to talk to you. And, and I think culture is the only thing that does that. Well, well, let's think about culture a little bit. I mean, I sometimes wonder when I was sort of researching your work what you might think of what's now called woke politics, you know, the reinterpretation of colonial history and the removal of statues. Do you see those um, as being part of these memory wards? No, no, no. So listen, I mean, let's go back to Ukraine. I think those statues should come down. Yeah, I don't think it's normal to have a statue of Dzerzhinsky. Oh, I, yeah, sorry. I, I was, absolutely. No, I was talking about the, the American Western context, the sort of woke um, politics where they're looking at colonial history, taking down the Rose statue in Oxford, these sorts of things. Well, I think we definitely should be talking about these things. Yeah, it's statues about your values in a society now. It's not about history. As in, like, it's not about, like, the whole argument, we shouldn't take down the statues because it's history is absurd. The statues are about, they put it in a museum. I mean, statues are about our values now. It's the way, but then it's a case how you talk about it. Is there a way of talking about it that actually gets people involved? I mean, what we found in our research, and I've been looking at research in the U.S. for people do, dealing with the statues issue, actually, in the U.S., very similar mm -hmm. to ours. Actually, once you start digging in, there are very few Robert E. Lee fanatics or very few Ku Klux Klan fanatics in most of these places. There's very few actual supporters of Dzerzhinsky in, in Ukraine. Actually, if you look at the underlying values people have, they're very, very similar. Most people don't want to be racist. And you can get them across. You can get these people involved in a conversation that gets you to the point of like, yes, actually, probably we should do something about this you know, commemoration of you know, Stalinist atrocities or of, or of racism. Um, and actually, the hard racists or the hard Stalinists are a minority. You could isolate them. So it's a question of how do you do it? Do you do bottom up? How do you build those? You know, that is about building community discussions. So there's a way of doing that. But no, no, I'm, I'm not. Look, um, America is very distant for me as somebody who's who's been brought up in Europe, largely in Russia. So there might be an American flavor to all of this, which I don't understand, and which I'm going to explore when I move there. But I mean, I'm for political correctness. I'm, I'm, I, I'm just like not. Maybe we should, there's a total way of doing it, but no, I think it's really important to understand that the, the language that people use carries huge amounts of abusive history in it. Um, I just maybe, maybe one shouldn't be too, too. I mean, maybe, maybe because I'm English, I mean, maybe into a more softer way of talking about this. But, but I'm kind of with the 
I think political correctness is a good thing, basically, is if that's the question. Mm. I think maybe the way one does it is 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 the key. But but um no, I I don't know. No, I I'm very aware of the anti-Semitism in English culture. Um I just don't have kind of I don't have sort of heart flutters around it. I think one just needs to patiently explain that, you know, thinking that Jews rule the world is actually an anti-Semitic trope. I mean, can we like, you know, <laughs> unpack that a little bit now? So so um I don't know. I'm probably with the Wokies in 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 terms of their mission. Maybe maybe we have differences of style. <laughs> mm. So let's talk then about solutions. What do you think that can be done about this this war on reality, Peter? Um, we're into the 21st century version of a, of a conversation that we had in the 20th century, which I suppose comes when there's big social change and technological change. But it is encapsulated. It's not about reality and unreality as such. It's about, you know, the way it was, it was framed in the 50s and 60s and in the 30s was an attention between the public and informed public, which sees the humanity in others and debates with them, disagrees with them, um, but is a public that's actively engaged in a kind of the mass society where people are manipulated and sort of uh, whipped up into various types of frenzies and where democratic discourse breaks down. This is something that obsessed people like Walter Lippmann and Dewey in the 20s and 30s, um, lots of sociologists in the 50s and 60s. Um, this is actually a really, really old conversation. I mean, I suppose you know Plato's thinking about this as well and not coming up with any nice answers. But, but, but this is an old, old thing. Can we be, and that's the old tension. It's the tension mm. between how do we have a democratic discourse based on on it's not just facts it's a lot of other things as well i think it actually starts with something much more emotional and deeper and 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 facts as sort of the the product um and and do you see humanization and, and hysteria <laughs> and do you see reasons to be optimistic about it um i see reasons to be optimistic about it because partly because COVID was this huge battle between the two things, because COVID was a moment where like evidence had to return. And I know it's still very scary when we have 30% of people in America thinking that COVID is a conspiracy, but um, that's a lot less than the 50% who voted for Trump. You know, it still splits the Trump coalition. Um, and it's very scary still. Look, look America, if America is our template, it's still very scary when 30% people seem to believe in the big lie, it's scary looking at India. It's actually very scary looking at India. Um, but but we saw that in a critical moment, people do start going, oh, evidence, listening to people, listening to each other, pulling together, um, not caring whether my doctor is a Republican or a Democrat. Um, it can happen. You know, reality at the end of the day actually makes the public bit more productive. It's a case of how bad does the crisis have to be? How bad is the horror that we go through? before we come, we realize that we need the public and not, you know, the propagandized identity wars of of, of the mass. <laughs> Peter Bomransov, Idris Ahmed, thank you very much. Thank you. Sorry, I've got to run. The Peter's book, This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, is out now. You can find Peter on Twitter at Peter Pomerantsev, Idris at I Am Pulse, and me at Faisal Yafai. And of course, you can follow all our essays, podcasts, and our newsletter at newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. Mm -hmm.